Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm your host, Sheila Hamilton, and I'm here with our engineer, John, who always makes us sound great. Hey, John. Hello, Sheila. September is National Alcohol and Drug Recovery Month, and I've been waiting for so long to partner with someone on a series of conversations about our often very complicated relationship that we have with drugs and alcohol. That's why I'm so excited to share with you a series of dynamic conversations in partnership with Fora Health Treatment and Recovery. I got to know Fora Health years ago at a fundraising event when they were still known as DePaul Treatment Centers. Yeah. Fora Health is a nonprofit alcohol and drug treatment center in Portland, Oregon, that has been helping youth, adults, and families for nearly 50 years. They offer compassionate, comprehensive, and affordable care for everyone, regardless of background, orientation, or ability to pay. Fora recently opened a new state-of-the-art campus in Portland's Southeast Gateway District, and the entire campus is healing and supportive. You can find out more about their full array of evidence-based therapies for drug and alcohol treatment at www.forahealth.org. If you or a loved one needs support, there are many options and personalized approaches to care. Reach out to Fora Health at 503-535-1151 or see the show notes for more details. Welcome back to Beyond Well. It is a difficult process to try to help someone who is battling addiction and understanding the types of treatments that are available and where to go for help are just two of the huge obstacles that families face. Today, we are talking with Kevin Mayon, the Chief Clinical Officer at Fora Health. Kevin has over 20 years of leadership experience working with people with substance use disorders and mental health conditions. And Kevin's role is to identify promote and sustain a coherent evidence-based model for service delivery across DePaul's youth and adult programs. Remember, DePaul is now for a health. And previously, Kevin focused on building programs to improve care for high-need patients with Care Oregon. Also joining us today is Narissa Heller. She's a social worker and adult outpatient care coordinator at Fora Health. I was so struck by the warmth and commitment of Kevin and Narissa in finding an individualized approach to each of their clients' concerns. It's so helpful. And this episode answers nearly every question that you might have about getting someone you love into the right kind of care. It is so wonderful to have you join the program today. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Sheila. We're honored to be here. Thanks for having us, Sheila. I am always fascinated by people who lend their expertise and their passion and all of their patience to people who are in recovery. So could you give me just a little bit of background on how each of you came to Fora Health? Kevin, why don't you start? Sure. Um, I'm originally from New York, so I started my career there working with various populations, but I really found working with the mental health and addiction population was was my calling. And it just is such a critical need. And I, I was really looking to be in a field where I thought I could make an impact and make a difference. Eventually, I came to Oregon about 12 years ago, and I continued working in various community behavioral health settings. Also worked at the county and then landed over at Care Oregon, which is the largest Medicaid health plan where I continued to do behavioral health work. 
And from there, I just really fell in love with DePaul, uh, now for a health, for a variety of reasons. Um, just them being, providing substance use and co-occurring mental health disorders for 45 plus years. Mm-hmm. Their commitment to evidence-based trauma-informed and culturally responsive therapies that are strength-based and patient-centered. And also that they offer the full continuum of care, allowing for individualized plans with very successful completion rates, well above the national average. So 26 Six years later, she <laughs> I'm, I'm here for health and I'm just honored to work for an agency that's just making such an impact on the community. Yeah, it's amazing. Thank you for all of that service, Kevin. And how about you, Narisa? So similarly, but a very different story, I also had a circuitous route to finding myself at Fora Health. And so I started off in the behavioral health field before I really knew that that's the type of work that I was doing. And I had been hired with Head Start and, you know, was all of 22 and had no idea what I was going to do with myself, but had had some experience working at an international preschool when I was in undergrad. One of the pieces of that program that I found the most rewarding was the access to home visits and going into families' homes and offering them parenting support. And one of the things that I quickly started to recognize is that that there were a lot of dynamics happening within the family system that I didn't feel well equipped to recognize or Mm -hmm. how to best support people. An example of that is working with a family who every week um, I would meet with them at two o'clock in the afternoon and the dad was always asleep on the couch with a blanket over his head. And so about nine months passed and I never met the father of this family. And as I got to know their dynamics better, you know, slowly began to recognize that this was an individual who is suffering with major depressive disorder and alcohol use disorder. And what I was seeing was actually a symptom of these challenges that he was facing in his life, Um, but definitely had to recognize like, okay, so I know that now, but I don't have the skills or the scope to help this individual and then hence help the family like I was really there to do. And so that inspired me to learn more about addiction and how it does impact people and how do people become addicted and how do you end up being someone who is on the couch all day long, unable to get up off the couch and participate with your family. So I went to pursue my certified in alcohol drug counseling certification through MACBO. And then as I continued to provide substance use counseling, I definitely quickly learned that folks suffering from addiction issues are often suffering as well from mental health symptoms. And so I went back to school and got my master's in social work so that I could better understand how to help people heal and live the lives that they are really wanting for themselves. And I've been in Portland for about 12 years, had worked at some other agencies and done a lot of coordination with DePaul and helped people access DePaul residential. Um, DePaul is known for having, as Kevin said, one of the longest standing and also the largest adult residential facility in Oregon. And so when a position came open that was interesting to me, I was very curious to integrate myself more into DePaul. And at this time, I'm just so excited to continue to be a part of this agency as we transition into Fora Health. We're going to be moving into a Southeast location. It's a brand new trauma-informed designed, very consciously put together space that's going to be 
a welcoming environment for both our staff and our patients. So I'm really excited to be a part of this shift and change. It's a, an amazing background that brought you to Fora Health. So talk about now, Narisa, what it is you do where you get to employ all of this knowledge and experience that you gained. Absolutely. So as a duly credentialed counselor, I definitely invested quite a few years in doing direct care so that I could have a better understanding of how do I de-escalate folks? How do I help people when they're in crisis and perhaps being really negatively impacted or not even in reality because of their substance use and or mental health issues. And so in my work now as an administrator, I'm the outpatient director. And so I support our downtown outpatient program and our Hillsboro location as well. I'm really happy to share that that includes access to a peer mentor team, to family therapy, to alcohol and drug counselors, to mental health counselors, Spanish speaking addiction counselors as well. And just really being able to ensure that we're operating on a daily basis of coming from that trauma informed, compassionate space that the teams have a lot of support around their own self-care that's really vital in this work, that we're not burning ourselves out and paying attention to our own patterns and habits and coordinating with community partners and ensuring that we're really well integrated into helping people get pathways to their healing, whatever that pathway might look like for them. Yeah, it's a great job. Kevin, what about you? As with Narisa, I'm a a licensed clinical social worker and my title is the chief clinical officer and I help support the the clinical programs or outpatient department, our residential department, admissions department, and also our youth department. In addition to that, I also do work on the local and and state level. You know, I think we at at Fora Health really want to be at the forefront of addiction services and help shape policy and help shape the the services that are provided in the the community. So it's just exciting to be a part of all of this. It's a big job, but having amazing staff like Narisa is is what gets me through the day. (laughs) Yeah, I've been very interested in watching what everyone is calling the long tail of the pandemic, and that is the impact on mental health and addiction. It feels to me like many people started trying to find ways to either numb themselves or help themselves feel better. What are you actually seeing in terms of how COVID increased people's reliance on drugs and alcohol? Narisa? We're not surprised. We were bracing ourselves as we went into this pandemic about, what, 19 months ago now, you know, knowing what we know about when we feel disconnected from each other, when we feel like we don't have a sense of belonging and we don't have access to our support systems. It is very human and normal to rely on some of our least effective coping skills. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we know about substance use is that in the beginning, substances are effective at offering a temporary escape, a temporary sense of relief, Mm. a temporary sense of I am okay and I can get through whatever this is. Um, So for all of us in the field, we anticipated that we would be experiencing a much higher risk of substance use and You know, I was shocked to find out recently that the overdose rates in Oregon have significantly increased. I believe that the figure we were just shared with was seven by 70% or 70 times higher overdose rates in Oregon in the past year and a half. Mm. Do you know, it's not surprising because whether we're consciously aware of it or not, we've all been impacted by 
this collective trauma of being in this global pandemic and not having the security of when is this going to end? You know, we all know we can get through anything for a short period of time, but when we don't have an end date, that anxiety and that hypervigilance of am I actually okay is absolutely going to increase um, for all of us. And then, you know, unfortunately, not all of us have the resources to cope with that level of stress in healthier ways. Kevin, I want you to piggyback on that thought because what I'm hearing from a lot of behavioral health experts is that people kind of held it together as best they could with substances or with whatever stress management capability they had. And that often it's when things start to go back to normal that you begin to see a lot of people in their worst kind of suffering because they see the rest of the world starting to return to some degree of normalcy and they're still feeling stuck in their mental health concerns or their addiction. Are you witnessing that at all? Yeah, absolutely. It's just changed in so many ways. There was so much isolation and lack of access to services during that time that the county in particular it really had an impact on the behavioral health services that were being delivered. I could speak for our agency in particular. Our access had decreased significantly. We had to adjust to different COVID protocols, which essentially meant quarantining people and, and doing various other things that reduce the amount of services, the beds that we could have. And, you know, that had an impact on the community and we're still in it. Yeah. We're still in it. You managed, however, to keep your doors open throughout the entire pandemic. Describe how you did that. Keeping our doors open in general was a huge accomplishment. Yeah. The information and changes that were happening, uh, especially in the beginning of the pandemic, were quite frankly overwhelming, both for our staff and our patients. We were stressed. There was a lot of anxiety, but it also showed the resilience of our staff and our patients. And I think that was just incredible to see. We kept showing up <laughs> and we kept our doors open and we were present for our patients and continued to provide the excellent support for people that were in crisis. One major shift that we had to make for our patients, uh, particularly in the outpatient department, was to shift to offer telehealth. A lot of our work and coordination had to, to take place both for us, with our staff and patients to be able to have people access healthcare solely through technology. That's a new thing, you know, and it's actually, I think, something that really was positive that came out of the pandemic. People traditionally have, have had issues accessing inpatient care, you know, for various reasons, whether it's childcare or transportation or maybe just stigma of coming into a clinic. So now offering that availability where someone can log on to their computer and access individual treatment or group treatment or even telephonic and at the state level providing adequate rates for our organization helped, I think, sustain the work that we were doing through the pandemic. So now I don't think that replaces in-person care and yeah. we did our best to still provide as much in-person care safely as that we could, especially for our folks that were experiencing a crisis situation. And we also have a huge houseless population that we serve. Individuals don't have access technology. And so how are they going to receive services? One thing that we did is we have a our peer recovery mentors who are uh, individuals who have had shared life experience went out and knocked on doors. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really incredible. 
People were afraid to come out of their homes and access services, and they're turning to alcohol and drugs. And we were intentional about having our staff outreach those folks and say, hey, we're still here. And I think That's that made, made a big difference. Norisa, Kevin just so beautifully described some of the real physical barriers to getting help, but I'd like to shift a little and talk to you about the psychological barriers to getting treatment, some of the things that people come up with in their different cultures, in their different age groups. So could we talk about these barriers and what happens to people in their decision-making as to whether or not to access treatment? So one of the things that we know about our culture here in the United States is that there is a tremendous amount of stigma and shame that's attached to suffering from the disease of addiction and really a lack of understanding from most of our communities that the experience of addiction is actually a brain disease, that it's not a moral failing, that it's not a lack of motivation, that it's not a lack of interest in having a healthy, meaningful life, but rather that it's actually a disease. And that barrier of believing that I have a moral failing or I am a failure, you know, the self-esteem issues that get connected to long-term addiction, because one of the values of our culture, right, is that you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you can take care of yourself and do what needs to be done. And so if you're struggling with being able to do that, it definitely creates a very significant psychological barrier in is it safe and acceptable for me to be vulnerable and to ask for help and to admit that perhaps I've tried to quit this pattern on my own and I'm not able to. Mm. And not uncommon for people suffering from addiction to be judged by their loved ones or people in their community. Why do you just keep doing this? Why can't you just stop? Like you're not showing up for important family events or you are, but you end up being intoxicated and saying things you didn't mean. And so from an outside perspective, There can be a tremendous amount of pressure put on people suffering from this disease in that if you really loved us, if you really cared about your family or the people in your community, you would just stop. And that outside perspective can definitely increase someone's unwillingness or fear and apprehension to admit that this is something bigger than me, that I can't just stop. And absolutely recognizing that people deserve to have support and evidence-based information around what's happening on a neurological level that keeps you from just being able to stop. I know this is a really simplistic explanation, but I think um, like all of us can relate to going to the dentist and getting your teeth cleaned and getting a little lecture about how important it is to floss, you know, every morning and night. And like, are you flossing every day? It looks like you might be drifting from that. And, you know, you come out of that experience and you feel like inspired, like, okay, that's it. I'm flossing every day for the rest of my life. And then over time, how, you know, you get tired one night and so you don't do it. And then that night turns into two nights you go six months later to get your teeth cleaned again and having that experience of like, oh my gosh, it's been like three months since I've diligently flossed. And I just use that as an example, like for any of us that think it's easy to just implement a behavior change overnight, just because we tell ourselves to being curious about, is that accurate? Can I just start a totally different pattern on any given day with no challenges and no interruptions. And again, knowing that that's a really minor behavior change. And so someone who's suffering from addiction, you know, you can take that experience and multiply it times a thousand of how difficult it is to stop doing something just because we tell ourselves to, or people that care about us tell us to. I feel like you might've talked with my hygienist before this interview, Nerissa. (laughs) 
<laughs> because you used that so aptly, I found my skin sort of crawling like, oh, okay. It, I really it, love it, that. It's the last time I flossed. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's a wonderful, really wonderful metaphor also because, you know, we have these incredible intentions and even when it's going to impact our health sometimes, it's still difficult to change. I want to talk also about the stages of change because I know that when it comes to actually getting help, admitting that you might need outside help for an addiction or a substance abuse problem, that there must be different levels of awareness and then resignation and then acceptance, I can imagine. You want to talk about that? So one of the things that we know in the behavioral health field is that all human beings go through stages of change. So again, whether it's making a commitment to flossing more or spending more quality time with your family or ceasing the pattern of using a substance to escape difficult emotions anywhere on that continuum. Um, something as little as drinking more water every day, like whatever those commitments are. Um, you know, not uncommon now for us to see everyone wearing Apple watches and tracking, you know, their steps and I think it's really important to destigmatize the challenge of change that comes from making a commitment to substance use recovery and really normalize that the stages of change apply to all human beings when we want to make something different in our lives. And that pre-contemplation, also known as denial, is that first stage of change. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that denial is a stage of change. Like it's normal and human to have a denial stage around your own behaviors and have this belief that, you know, I'm actually still in control. I'm doing okay. I don't have to make any changes. Maybe I'm a little uncomfortable sometimes or I'm getting feedback that others around me are struggling with witnessing me engage in this behavior. And I hear that, but I'm just fine. Like, no, thank you. I don't need help. I don't need to make any changes because I'm still in control. And again, just normalizing that that's something we all go through around any change that we want to make. And what typically happens then is the experience of having enough discomfort with a behavior that we start to be curious, like maybe I'm not still in control. Maybe I do need to rethink about some of my daily patterns and behaviors. And we consider that the contemplation stage of change. So when someone just starts to be contemplative around, hmm, maybe the feedback I'm getting from loved ones has some validity, or maybe I'm noticing that I used to be able to get out of bed two hours um, early to get ready for work. And now I drank one extra glass of wine last night and it's harder to get up on time. Just starting to notice that there might be some negative consequences to our behaviors that we're not okay with. That next stage of change, and I like to remind everyone too that these stages of change are very interchangeable. They're not necessarily linear. I might contemplate, if, is this behavior actually helpful for me? And then I might go back into total denial. Like actually I'm absolutely fine and I continue to not need support. Um, but preparing for change is another process of that change. So starting to think about if I was wanting to do this differently, what would I do? How would I start to change this behavior? Where are my resources? What are the things that I've done in the past to help me make positive changes in my life? And can I use some of those skills to help me? Do I have a faith-based community or loved ones in my family or a coworker who I really feel like understands me? Who are my support systems? Mm -hmm. And starting to prepare for 
if I was to make this change, what would I do? And then the really exciting, and we kind of call this the honeymoon phase because it feels really good. Um, initially, the exciting stage of change is action. Like now I'm going to take those plans that I was considering and I'm going to reach out. I'm going to ask for help. Maybe I'm going to write down on paper in the behavioral health field, we call that a treatment plan. Like, absolutely, let's not just talk about what you want to do differently. Let's document it and let's give you a copy of that so you can remind yourself on a daily basis. These are the changes that I'm implementing today. So that feels really good to start to implement and, you know, show to ourselves that we are capable of changing. And then maintenance is when we have implemented those action steps and those action steps become a daily part of our lives and we're no longer feeling compelled to engage in that pattern of a behavior that was causing us harm. Mm. Um, But again, knowing that I'm describing that in a linear way and very normal for people to be back and forth into all different stages of change, you know, and I've worked with individuals that have been in maintenance stage for 22 years. They have a significant loss or trauma in their lives and they're right back in their disease of addiction and in that pre-contemplative stage of change. Yeah. It's like grief. You go forward and then back and then you're Mm -hmm. back in denial and then you're in anger and you're like, wait a minute, I thought I finished that stage, but you're absolutely right. I really love how you described that, Narisa. Thank you. Kevin, you know, you mentioned in the beginning that you were so proud of For Health's continuum of care. Would you describe it and why it's so important to offer it? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'll kind of give a higher level overview of what that looks like. Typically, the first step for folks would be to enter what's known as medically assisted withdrawal or detox. That is typically where you are actively using a substance and it's a medically assisted program that can reduce withdrawal and symptoms, essentially ensure safety. Uh, Everyone has a different experience with detox, the type of drug, the, the, the length of use, how often it was used, all have an impact of what that detox looks like. Choosing to detox from home can be really dangerous. So we really would want to encourage people to do that under medical supervision. People can be at risk for seizures and other medical complications. That's typically why. So medications are often used in detox. They help people feel safe, comfortable, and reduce some of the symptoms that go along with detox. Often people can become nervous or anxious, have insomnia, mood swings, difficulty concentrating, those types of things. On on average, depending on what substance it it is, it can last from anywhere to three to five days. Could be less, could be more. From there, we talked with people about transitioning into our residential program, which is the next level of care. The length of stay is on average 45 to 60 days, wouldn't you say, Narisa? Yeah, we like to remind people because that's a really common question that, okay, I'm willing to take this scary step of in rolling in residential, like how long do I have to be here before I'm well? And so we definitely like to remind people that like Kevin's saying, like a 60-ish day stay is average, but it's really based on skill and your own personal development of where am I at and being able to leave a controlled environment and still take good care of myself. And so for most people, that's about 60 days. Um, But we try to encourage folks not to look at like the end date of a calendar date, but rather how will I know that I'm ready to return back to the community? And and that's where using the treatment plan that Narisa had mentioned earlier, really, really is what it's supposed to be based around. But people like an exact date and 
That's, that's what we say on average. And that's really where the treatment takes place. So we have certified alcohol and drug counselors, mental health counselors, doctors, peers, family therapists. It's an opportunity also to be around other folks experiencing similar issues and to start to build a community. It's really important that people start to plan for what happens after residential. We're just a small step in their journey. You know, I often like to think it's almost like this is the easy piece, but when you go back out to in the, to the same people, places, and things, that's when it can get challenging. So really building that support network is super important. And that's where our peers come in also. They may help people get to a community meeting. We'll go with you. You know, it can be, it can be scary. So having someone to walk alongside them to get them to that meeting is really important. Within our residential program, this is pretty neat. We have a program, which is our 3.7 level of care. That's a unique program for Fora Health. I think we're the only ones in the state providing this level of care. And that is designed for individuals with more acute medical and or psychiatric issues. Individuals that may have had, um, may have been denied or had trouble getting access to other residential programs because their symptoms are too acute. We designed this program specifically for that population. And we're seeing it's having a wonderful impact on the community. 24-hour nursing, high-touch psychiatric services, and all those substance use disorder services wrapped around the person. Wow. So t- yeah, so typically people stay at that level of care, you know, for on, on average for maybe two weeks while they stabilize, and then they can step down to our regular programming. After residential, we really encourage, again, for people to stay connected, and that's where our outpatient program comes in, where what Nerissa runs. You know, that can look different. Again, it's based on individual treatment plans and it can consist of individualized group and uh, counseling sessions. Again, on average, I don't, I don't know, Narisa, what do you think? Three to six months? Yeah, it's usually a three to six month stay. So that's, that's kind of the overview within those different levels of care. There's, there's a variety of different services that are attached. Yeah, I want to talk more, and Narisa, I hope you'll pick up here, just when Kevin was talking about the importance of peer support and also this alumni group that you had, it occurred to me that what a great thing to be able to reach out to someone who looks like you, who may have done the same drug or had the same issues as you. What are some of the other benefits that maybe we might not know about of a peer support or alumni group? It's been really exciting in the behavioral health field I would describe that it's only in the last decade that the work of peer mentors has really started to be seen as an integral part of a successful behavioral health treatment program and really making that connection like you were describing to someone who has walked a similar path and can relate to what it feels like to feel very overwhelmed and terrified of making a commitment to change Um, We recognize that those of us with a lot of initials after our name, we're here for the same philosophical reasons as all of our colleagues, and yet it can be intimidating. Like, wow, here's this duly licensed clinician, and they're talking to me about these evidence-based models, and 
we recognize that as a crucial part of skill development. Also coupling that with someone that can just take a walk with you and get you a cup of coffee and talk about while not looking face to face at each other in an office based setting, but rather taking a walk through a park and not making direct eye contact and just talking about what has it been like for you to be in this journey of suffering from this disease and connecting with someone who can offer that level of inspiration and hope that change is possible and having someone walk alongside them that not only has the clinical knowledge of how to support someone, but also the lived experience and can really identify that even though I haven't been through exactly what you've been through, I know what it's like to feel hopeless. I know what it's like to feel scared to reach out and get support. Yeah, that's so beautiful. Kevin, you mentioned something just a little bit earlier about the pandemic and the impact on our mental health. And I'm very curious how you determine whether a client is suffering from a mental health problem or they're suffering from a substance abuse problem that has created a mental health problem. It seems a little like the chicken and the egg debate, but I'd be curious about your thoughts. It happens all the time, Sheila. And it, it doesn't necessarily change the way that we deliver services. Our role is to really just meet people where they're at and provide support in any way that we can. Often we don't discover there may be an underlying mental health issue until the drugs and alcohol are out of their system. Our counselors are, are trained to identify uh, when this happens or the patient may uh, approach us and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm feeling a lot better, but I'm also having a lot of anxiety and depression. And we're able to provide those, those additional mental health services. And that can be just, again, individualized programming, group programming, and also a referral to our psychiatric nurse practitioner if it warrants medication. So I don't know if it matters that much, Sheila. <laughs> Maybe to some it does, but for us, it's whole healthcare. And we're going to take it day by day with the person and and again, just walk alongside them and we're here for whatever those needs may be. And if you would just expand a little more on medical assisted recovery and why it's becoming so much more popular in um, drug and alcohol rehabilitation and also what are the benefits of a person who chooses medically assisted recovery rather than the older methods? It's commonly known as medication assisted treatment or MAT. We here at Fora just say medication. And that's intentional to, again, to reduce stigma. It's just like if you were prescribed medication for your diabetes, it's just medication. (laughs) There's a lot of benefits to medication. It really goes hand in hand with our behavioral health intervention. Matt pairs non-medication therapies such as counseling or cognitive behavioral therapy with FDA approved medication to treat opioid use disorder. There's several different medications, naltrexone, buprenorphine, uh, methadone, and each medication differs in the way it works to relieve symptoms for opioid withdrawal or to block the euphoric effects of drugs. And I think the, the benefits, why is it successful? It increases the chances a person will remain in treatment. So our retention has gotten much better since we started using MAT. It helps People build the networks necessarily for long-term recovery. It's most effective to treat opioid use disorder and is more effective than either behavioral health interventions or medications alone. So it's powerful. It's it's really a focal point of our treatment here. 
it significantly re reduces illicit opiate use compared with non-drug approaches, mm. can reduce overdose fatalities. That's huge. We've seen a big increase in that since the pandemic. It also can reduce risk behaviors such as injection of illicit drugs and decreases transmission of infectious diseases such as HIV and hepatitis C. So again, I, I think MAT alone is powerful. We're, we're starting a new program here in our outpatient department. If people want medication and that's all they want, that's fine. Yeah. If they want medication and behavioral health interventions, that's okay too. In particular, this is, this is kind of uh, a, a new program for us out at our Hillsboro location. We're now going to be offering MAT um, with a specific focus on the Latinx population. Wow. And it's an unmet need in, in Washington County. And so we're excited to start to be able to provide those services. Wow. I want to talk more about behavioral therapy. Is it important if you can combine it with Matt and why? And what kinds of behavioral therapies tend to work with different types of abuse syndromes? So one of the things as we move into for a healthy, we have some core values established for ourselves and empathy and respect are two of those core values. So coming from that lens, you know, our goal is to respect and honor what every individual wants for themselves. And so like Kevin was saying, you know, depending on the stage of change someone is in and what they are ready and willing to try for themselves, our job is to show up and offer that support. And then also we have long-term hope for someone that they can start to make incremental changes that will keep them from being stuck in that place of all I know is how to use a substance to cope with the challenges of life. Because we can expect those stressors to happen in the human experience. We know that that's unavoidable. And so our support to someone is that we'll give you exactly what it is that you're saying you're ready for. And we're going to honor that. And there's no pressure or expectations like you have to do X, Y, and Z in order to stay engaged with us. That's not the lens that we're coming from. And yet that being said, part of our work is to make sure like as you're here in our care, we want to make sure that you have access and knowledge about what else is on the menu of choices for you. As Kevin was describing, just like someone suffering from diabetes, we know that medication for some people who are diabetic is essential to their survival and health. And also there's lifestyle and behavioral changes that that individual can get support around starting to practice so that they don't have to rely solely on medication and that they can empower themselves that I get to make some choices about my diet and my exercise and my water intake that will just help me feel better. Just like any other disease and the recovery and healing process, we're here to support people in understanding that you deserve to have support and you deserve to feel empowered that I've got more skills in my tool belt and so that idea of pills plus skills, right? Like medication is vital um, for those that are identified as medically needing it and wanting it. Um, it can absolutely help reduce cravings. It can, like Kevin was saying, medication for substance use are often life-saving medications because it keeps someone from going through extreme withdrawals and then returning to use to avoid those withdrawals. But we also want to support people at their own pace, getting out of that cycle of feeling really stuck and relying on only external substances and having the internal skills within themselves to 
cope with stress, to be aware of DBT skills or CBT skills or the ACT model, like whatever model fits for them so that they can really integrate those daily practices of skills into their lives. And we know that that's a part of long-term rather than white knuckling it and just kind of getting through it. Um, that's the really the perfect recipe for long-term recovery and support. Kevin, I want to talk about the you know, practicalities of care. And that is, I know many people are actually confused about how to access care. So could you you just slow it way down and describe the steps to care for someone on Medicaid or uh, uh, the Oregon Health Plan versus someone who might have private insurance? Having worked for a health plan, Sheila, I can say it's overwhelming and very confusing. However, it doesn't have to be. The first step I would encourage people to do is identify who is your insurance provider on the back of your insurance card. There should be a customer service number, call that number, say that you're interested in services, and they'll be able to provide some information about who's in your network. That would be step one, whether it's private or OHP. I, I think from the other things that you, you can do is just go to a specific agency on the website and just it, often it will list what insurance providers are covered or just call. You know, our, our admissions team does this daily, all day. They will walk someone through what that process looks like. Also, if you don't have insurance, that's okay too. We and many of the agencies have what's known as assisters. And if you're eligible, can sign you up for OHP right there in the spot. So you don't have to know <laughs> all the things around insurances because it's really, it can be overwhelming. And that's our job to help people walk through that. And Narissa, I know that it is not uncommon for people to say that they were denied or that they were, that their benefits were discontinued. How important it is for people to continue to advocate for themselves or a loved one in this way? You know, one of the things that's connected to that shame and stigma of suffering from this disease is this internalized belief that I'm not worth fighting for. And so it's really vital that loved ones and individuals for themselves as well, like a common thing we use in the field is never, 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 never give up. Um, As Kevin was saying, we recognize that even the best systems have a lot of barriers and challenges and frustrations, and yet they absolutely are navigatable. It is possible. It does require that level of patience and persistence. Mm -hmm. And so for a loved one to continue to show up and to say, I still see that you're suffering. We haven't given up on you. We're knocking on every door. We're waiting on call um, on hold for an hour and a half while we clean house and waiting for someone from OHP to answer the phone, that it's absolutely imperative to take that very first step and have that be a reflection of the love and the belief that loved ones have in their family member that we're not giving up on you. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, I want to talk, Kevin, about other resources other than four that might be out there in the community that could be helpful for people who are like wildly jotting all this information down. Anything else that you want to tell people about that's really good? I mean, I think there's just a variety of, of, of different ways to access help in the community. There's AA, there's 12-step meetings, there's smart recovery, refuge recovery, there's faith-based programs. It just really depends what you're comfortable with. And I, I would just encourage people to try, to get out there and try. And people are, want you to, to, to come. <laughs> don't, don't hesitate. 
Uh, Narisa, can I always love to end these with, you know, it's sort of like circling back to the beginning and asking you about in your career, what are the biggest myths and misconceptions that you've heard about addiction and recovery and maybe setting people straight is the last thing that we leave them with in terms of what you really know from your base of experience and knowledge. I love that question because that's part of our mission work as well as providers in the behavioral health field is to ensure that we continue to challenge those myths and we continue to offer not just support to our identified patients, but to the community and better understanding the evidence-based facts and the neuroscience research that has proven over the past 35 years, we've learned a lot more about the human brain. Um, there's still a lot to know. There's a great mystery there, but we definitely are learning a lot more as a practice of how do people's brains heal and how are they impacted by long-term substance use. And we know through evidence that the disease model of addiction is accurate, that suffering from addiction is indeed a brain disease. And so that really challenges that myth that suffering from substance use is a moral failing or a personal choice or a reflection that this is just someone who isn't invested in making their lives different. So when, again, when we look at that stage of change model, you know, we know that just because someone's saying not today doesn't mean that healing is impossible for that person. And also really challenging that myth that recovery is a destination, you know, that you come to DePaul, you spend, let's say from the medication managed withdrawal to outpatient, you spend nine months with us. And that myth that, okay, mission accomplished, like you are now healed and you don't need this support anymore. Um, so challenging that myth that recovery is really an ongoing lifelong journey, that's the truth. And the myth is that you go to a place, you get healed and well, and then you don't need support anymore. And the disease is gone, like you're, you're okay. And absolutely, you do get to be okay, you get to learn how to live with this disease in a way that is manageable, and a life that is worth living. But it's not that you arrive at a destination. And we hear that a lot from family members, like, why is this person back in your care? Why aren't they doing what they said they were going to do? Why aren't they keeping their commitments to them? themselves. Um, another myth that we like to challenge is that someone has to hit rock bottom in order to seek out treatment and support. And that's a pretty old school myth that people who are suffering from addiction are not going to get better until they've lost everything in their lives. And we always want to challenge that, that from an outside perspective, it's never my place to understand or know when is that moment going to be for someone. I mean, we've worked with people that have gotten one DUI and that was it for them. They were like, you know, I'm not going to have this experience anymore. I recognize that this was a high risk behavior and I want to change my relationship with alcohol or other drugs as a result. So just really knowing that as a loved one, it's actually not helpful to just sit back and wait and watch for that person to lose everything and then say, okay, now they're really ready to get support. Because we all have our own personal definition of what rock bottom is and what yeah. um, discomfort is. Yeah. Right. And people do come back. They may come back multiple times and, you know, we're going to leave the doors open and the lights on here. And that's okay. We, we want people to come back. Kevin and Narisa, I've just been completely captivated both by your incredible knowledge, but also your commitment and your compassion for people who are struggling, aren't we all, from time to time. And I'm just so thrilled to have spent this hour with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. 
Thanks for having us, Sheila. It's been an honor as well. And we're really hoping that this message reaches some listeners in a way that has an impact and inspires a sense of hopefulness and curiosity about picking up the phone and calling for some help.